You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. First will be a time of cross-examination where the pre-wrath position will actually ask questions of the pre-trib position. Then the pre-trib position will ask questions about the pre-wrath position. Uh, you'll have two timekeepers. One, I'll keep track of the 20 minutes for each one of those, but also we have another timekeeper here keeping track of the fact that uh, the answers are usually about a minute long, so nobody has a chance to filibuster for too long. Then we'll have some closing statements, seven minutes each, and then we'll be done for the evening. So again, we appreciate you staying here for so long. So let's begin. Uh, Dr. Ice, uh, <clears throat> the uh, Titus 2.13 reads, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So in Titus 2.13, uh, what is our blessed hope? Uh, I believe it's a rapture, and that's better translated waiting for, not looking. Okay, and uh, on what basis can you say that is the rapture? How do we know that's the rapture? Uh, because the rapture could happen at any moment, whereas the second coming is preceded by signs. Okay, so the blessed hope is the rapture, correct? Yes. Uh, what about the next phrase, the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus? Is that also part of the rapture? Yes. It is. He, he appears in the sky according based on other rapture passages. Okay. Um, now, you, you mentioned the blessed hope is the, the rapture is signless. Is there anything, is there any, in this text itself, uh, is there anywhere you would say that is signless? Is it because you would say there are no signs mentioned in this passage? Well, b- because you have that and a collection of other passages that talk about waiting for Christ, and uh, that implies imminence. That he could come at any moment. Okay, so it's your position that in the, the context of Titus 2.13, uh, it doesn't say either one way or the other whether it's signless or, or there are signs, correct? Uh, I do not know. It talks about the first coming. It contrasts it with the first coming. And, but uh, you have uh, the whole idea of a blessed hope is a positive thing. Versus having to face the Antichrist. Okay. That's not anything that would provide hope. Okay, then uh, we are to look for the epiphania. Is that correct? The appearing, the epiphania. Okay, so you would you would agree that the epiphania in the blessed hope is the same thing, or that is the in rapture. that context. Uh, those words are used. Obviously, it's used for the first coming of Christ there earlier, verse eleven. Okay. Uh, but you do agree, though, the blessed hope in that passage there, uh, would you agree that there are, that there's no intention of whether, to indicate whether there are signs or non-signs preceding the blessed hope in this passage? Right. Okay. Um, then, uh, next uh, question would be the... Um, <clears throat> it, in other words, it's the quality of the statement itself, the qualitative nature of the statement, the the idea of a blessed hope certainly wouldn't involve going through any part of the tribulation. Okay, so you do agree you have to go to other passages to find if if the rapture is signless. Other other passages in their context are used similarly. Okay. And therefore, none of those other passages... Uh, in other words, they all have you waiting for Christ. Question for you. Does the apostasy in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, whatever it's referent, uh, would you agree that this apostasy happens before the seven-year period? 
yes. Okay. And your position is that the Greek word apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is most likely here, uh, it means a speech, spatial departure as you interpret that as the rapture. Is that correct? That is the view that I think is most probable. However, uh, the passage re- is giving two reasons why they are not in the tribulation. It's not saying that this has to happen first, and therefore my preferred interpretation or uh, is that it does refer to a physical departure because that's what the word antiisteme means. Uh, but even if you take it to refer to departure from the faith or revolt or whatever, uh, he's saying the reason why we're not in the day of the Lord, i.e. the 70th week of Daniel, is because these things haven't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So you do affirm that the, the word apostasy in Second Thessalonians 2.3 refers to a spatial departure that is the rapture. That, that I think, makes the best sense in that context. Okay. Um, could you cite for me a single instance in all of Koine Greek literature where this term is ever means a spatial departure? I'm getting my evidence here. Uh, if you look at Wayne House's article in the book I edited with Tim Demme called When the Trumpet Sounds, he provides examples. And uh, he shows that Robert Gundry's uh, study of apostasia has many errors in it. And uh, he cites in that article some from the papyri. Right, but my, my question is, can you, say, can you document at least one, just one instance of all of Koine literature, almost, uh, you know, almost a f- over a 400-year period, just one instance in which the noun apostasia means a spatial departure? Uh, Wayne House did in that article, and I don't have that with me. Okay, so you don't have the, docu- you don't have the documentation? I do not have it with okay. me. Okay, all right. But uh, you also have the fact that the the apostasia is only used like uh, two times in the in all of Greek literature with just the article with an ellipsis there, uh, not referring to the object. And when you say all Greek literature, you mean um, all like Koine literature? Any form, not not including the uh, lampy or anything like that. In other words, apostolic or post-apostolic era, and uh, so it's a very rare usage. And uh, almost always it has an object that it uses. And the verb, which is the cognate of which most nouns come from, um, is used 66 times for spatial departure in uh, Greek literature. And in the Septuagint alone, it's used 66 times. Gundry was in error by saying that the abstract usage revolt was used more times, but it wasn't. It was only 53 times. Right. <clears throat> so I, and, and so you have of the 15 uses of the verb in the New Testament, uh, 12 probably refer to a spatial departure. So it's, okay, well, I, I, I want to get to the verb, but right now I'm talking about the noun, apostasia. I, I understand, but okay. uh, almost everybody agrees that nouns come from verbs. And when you have an unusual low usage of something with a noun, with an article, then uh, all you're establishing here is the uh, parameter of what it's used for. And Liddell and Scott list disappearance as its second uh, usage or meaning. So they apparently believed also that it it uh, has... Okay, first of all, you mentioned the, uh, the verb form, ephesomy. Uh, uh, are you aware that you're committing the cognate fallacy by reading a noun by reading a uh, the noun from the verb? That's called the cognate fallacy. In fact, Dia Carson in his book he calls it the root fallacy. And the cognate fallacy is a form of the root fallacy, where you you know you can't uh, you can't make those assumptions. Uh, are you aware of the cognate fallacy? Yes, I am, and I did not make an argument. I just simply said what people you know. If you read anybody Kittles, all these uh, people, they talk about the semantic range of words, and that's all I was talking about, that 
it is possible. Uh, and Wayne House, as I say, cites an example or two about, I think, one about someone standing on the dock and watching the boat disappear, you see. Right, but, there's the a, but you're not presenting that as evidence tonight right. because you don't – okay, okay. That's what right. I want. Now, and, I have and a I question. Say, did not say okay. that that proves anything about the noun. Um, okay. I, I, I guess I just want to move on a little bit here. Um, could, could you tell me why there aren't any standard New Testament lexica that lists apostasia as a meaning for spatial departure? Yes, because when you had uh, Jerome translating the Vulgate, he translated it departure. And all the English trans- early English translations, about seven, six or seven of them, translated it departure. And that's the best translation. That's what it means. And uh, then you had the... Well, Reem- I'm, I'm sorry. Let me finish. You had the Reims Bible came in and the first Catholic English translation, and translated it revolt. They gave a theological interpretive translation because they wanted it to refer to the Reformation. And then the King James were the first to translate it uh, as uh, falling away and then others apostasy. And so uh, they were countering it by saying the Roman Catholic Church. So that they did theological interpretations rather than going with the earliest translations that translated simply departure and let the reader understand. If that had been translated departure, it would not be a hard argument uh, to get it to refer to a, a physical departure. Okay, but are you aware that that, uh, that Jerome's Vulgate and the early uh, English translations, uh, a lot of them, yes, they, they translated as departure, but are you aware that they did not translate it as a spatial departure? They also meant that there was a, uh, they, there was a, is a rendering, a gloss for also a, a religious departure as well. In fact, uh, are you aware of Hebrews 3, 3.12 in, uh, in the early English versions where they actually use the term departure using, uh, referring to an apostasy? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree and understand those things, but the point is they, they translated it departure. And that, by many linguists, is said to be the best translation that uh, then allows the interpreter to understand whether it's a physical departure or an abstract noun, uh, you know, like apostasy. Okay, um, my next question is you mentioned uh, Liddell and Scott's uh, Lexicon, uh, are you aware that this is not a Koine Greek lexicon? Yes, it's, okay. it's for all of Greek. Okay. I have my copy. Okay, good. Uh, and, and, the, and you mentioned the, they have a secondary meaning that refers to spatial departure. In fact, I have it right here. It says departure, disappearance. Are you aware that the one instance they can find for it to refer to a physical or a, a physical departure or a spatial departure is from the sixth century. That's almost five centuries removed from the New Testament. Right. Okay. I'm then, aware of that. Then are you aware that you're uh, using the anachronistic fallacy by reading a term that's a very rare term from the sixth century, reading it back into Second Thessalonians two three? That's anachronistic fallacy. Yeah. Well. Okay. I argue mainly from the context because the word apostasia can mean physical departure. And therefore, the context is that he's talking about our episunogoge, our gathering together to him. And uh, therefore, the context better supports that. Plus, in verse 15, he talks about a letter he had previously written to them. And you read First Thessalonians, he never wrote about the doctrine of apostasy or anything, but he talked all over it about the rapture, you know, and our departure to be with Christ. And so I think what tips me in the direction of that is um, the idea of the context. But this is a secondary issue for most pre-tribulationalists. You know, I, I happen to lean in that direction, but pre-tribulationalism doesn't rise or fall on this. Okay, and, and, and again, I just want to just reaffirm here, you, you just mentioned that apostasia can refer to a physical departure, but you're not able to produce a single instance in all of Koine Greek literature that apostasia ever means a physical departure. Is that correct? I'm not able, but Wayne House was. Okay. Um, and, yeah, but you're not able to give us what Wayne House... I can't give it to you okay. here. Okay. Um, I want to move on. I have another question here, and that is, 
do you agree that the um, that First Thessalonians four fifteen uh, teaches that Christ's coming will happen when the church will be here on earth at that time? I'm sorry. Do, do you agree that First Thessalonians four fifteen teaches that Christ's parousia coming will happen uh, when the church will be on earth at that time? So yeah. in First Thessalonians four fifteen, the the term yes. parousia is mentioned. Okay, the, right? Okay. Uh, so in First Thessalonians four, we have the depiction of the the rapture, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's going to happen at the at the parousia, at the beginning mm-hmm. of parousia. Uh, now, in Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Now concerning the coming parousia of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, and so on, would you agree that you know, the parousia and our being gathered to him, Paul is likely making a reference back to his first epistle? Yes. Okay. All right, then my question is, a few verses later, in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul states that the Antichrist will be here before the Lord's Parousia coming, he says. Then that lawless one will be uh, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to the end of the appearance, the the appearance that is the epiphania of his parousia. Do you agree that the church then will be here at that time? No. Okay. Uh, then on what basis can you disrupt the unity between the parousia, parousia mentioned in verse 1 and, the one, and parousia mentioned in verse 8? The context. In the first usage of parousia, in two one, he has an adjectival qualifier and our gathering, epesunogoge, our gathering together with him. And then by the time you get to verse 8, he's talking about the events in the tribulation, the career of the Antichrist. So obviously, as he talked about in chapter 1, he's talking about the second coming uh, when the Lord is going to return and blow away the bad guys. Okay, so you would say the parousia in uh, verse 1 refers to the rapture, and then seven years later um, in verse 8, you have this other parousia. Yes. that As I, I made the point earlier that it's used many times in different ways. For example, in Philippians, it's used about Paul being present with him. That's not the second mm-hmm. coming. And he, he talks in another passage about simply his presence with the Corinthians. So it, it's not a word that it, it is a, and as I said, you try to make it a semi-technical term when uh, that's not legitimate. I don't believe it's a, a, a semi-technical term, just in, when it's in the context of the, the Lord's coming. But I have. But that's the implication that, that you're trying to make here. Okay. And uh, the context accounts for the different usages. Now, it also mentions the epiphania uh, of the parousia, the epiphania. So you would say that we're not here for the epiphania. Well, in this context, no. But in First John chapter 3, you know, uh, we won't shrink back at his coming. That is a reference to the rapture. Right, but so, you said in Titus 2.13 that epiphania... No, 1 John. Okay, but the, 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 the epiphania in, uh, uh, in Titus 2.13, though, that you would say that's... Yeah, that, that is uh, the rapture. And okay. we had a, at Dallas, a hermeneutical cheer. We used to call it context, context, context. And right. context is the most important factor uh, for... Narrowing down nuance usage of words. So you would say you would believe in two epiphanias? Yes. Okay. Okay, that's uh, all my questions in. So. You remember that? Hermeneutical cheer? <laughs> you must not have had the right teachers. Just kidding. You know, but. Uh, okay. If the church is. vulnerable today for not preaching and warning people about facing the Antichrist, then why are there not New Testament warnings? Instead, you have uh, the passages that tell us to wait and look for Christ, or not to look, but to wait for Christ who's coming at any moment. Well, I believe there's a a passage, for example, in in Paul, right? 1 Thessalonians 5 that talks about waiting, correct? But, but there he's talking about the tribulation, and we're not of that. Um, believers are not of that day. Okay, but he, he it's, it's actually directed to, to believers. 
In first, uh, first. Well, the whole new, the whole Bible's directed to believers. Yes, but that that's in the context. First Thessalonians uh, five, you have a specific groga uh, That's the the term there. Uh, to I believe that's the term uh, referred to as as waiting. Waiting and being alert, actually. Watching and being alert. Right. Because we're not of the night. In other words, that's why we're waiting for the Lord. And we're waiting for that day, even. you know, because And it's going to come suddenly. In fact, that leads to another question. Uh, if the day of the Lord comes suddenly, as this passage talks about, and unexpected by unbelievers, wouldn't that best fit a preacher view versus having gone through uh, the majority of the 70th week of Daniel? Uh, the... How is that going to catch them off guard? Oh, the, 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 the wrath of God is going to come suddenly, and it's going to come when they're saying, you know, peace and safety, and that happens during the Antichrist Great Tribulation. The world is going to love this guy. There's going to be a, a false uh, security, and the world is going to say peace and safety, but then, of course, sudden destruction is going to come upon upon the wicked. That's how I would see right. it. Right. Well, uh, since Daniel 9.27 says that the Antichrist is the one who makes the covenant. He will make a covenant with the many. The many is a technical term in Daniel for Israel, or at least the remnant of Israel. Uh, so he's there, present, from the beginning. And yet, you don't seem to think that he's going to be there at the very beginning. In fact, I even heard you say once that you're not even sure if we'll know when the tribulation starts. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm likely to think that believers will be discerning when the seven-year period begins, uh, you will have a covenant, and I believe in conjunction with reinstitution of the Levitical system. And I think that, you know, if we see a seven-year covenant being made, and in conjunction with that, I think we're likely, but I don't know if we can be certain. And that's it's interesting because Paul, Jesus... And uh, the book of Revelation really focus on the midpoint, not the beginning point. And I, I believe that it's the revelation of Antichrist that happens at the midpoint. That is going to be the, you know, the touchstone that you know, we are in this for sure. Well, I agree. It focuses on the midpoint, but it says he will make a seven-year covenant with the many and in the middle of the week. But that statement includes... Him there at the beginning of the 70th week making the covenant with Israel or imposing it or however you take that. Uh, yeah, no, like, like I said, I think, I think, uh, I'm, I'm likely to think that when the seven year period happens, I think we will know that it has happened. I'm just saying we're, we're not going to be as dogmatic until the midpoint. Well, I heard you on one of your programs say that, uh, we might not even be sure when the tribulation starts because it might be, uh, I don't know if you were the secretive or clandestine type uh, covenant. Well, that, that's what I mean by when the seven-year period begins, um, that, that, that that's going to be the time when, again, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. I mean, that's, if you mean by the tribulation period, the, the seven-year yeah, period? Yes. But, yeah, I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if we can say, say for 100% certainty that we're going to be here uh, or I'm sorry, 100% certain that we are going to know that we have entered into the seven-year period. Yeah, whereas pre-tribulationists don't have that because of the discontinuous event called the rapture and after that clear signing of the covenant. And uh, this seems to be a public event that people are going to know. Actually, I would, uh, um, I, I, I think all pre-tribulationists are going to know when uh, the midpoint happens because they're going to see it. From heaven, yes. Afraid uh, not. I think, I think Kirby, God's going to save at least one journalist to give us reports. <laughs> uh, what passages actually teach the chopping up of the 70th week of Daniel? In other words, that not just a person classifying this as this and that, but actually teach uh, discontinuities. We know that there, it teaches that the Great Tribulation is the second half but other than that, I don't know of passages that clearly teach the chopping up of these things into segments as you do. Well, I mean, if you have the midpoint, right? You have the midpoint of, in Matthew 24, 
I think you would agree that you have the abomination of desolation in verse 15, and, the, and it says, you know, there's going to be a great tribulation. But before uh, verse 15, uh, you have, in verses 4 through 8, you have a mention of the beginning of birth pains. So I think it's a... Yeah, I we, think agree, it's a we agree on that. I'm talking okay. about other terms. Okay, other terms. Uh, great tribulation will be cut short, and then the day of the Lord's wrath will uh, begin. Yeah, the phrase right. that great tribulation, cut, it doesn't say the great tribulation will be cut short. It says those days, the days that would lead to the destruction of the Jews. Actually, no, that's are, not correct. Are, it's, it, it's actually referring back to so, uh, the tribulation of those days. In the immediate context is... And, and, uh, and it says, you know, why are they cut short for the sake of the elect? And it shows that the, the elect are being uh, persecute, persecuted right. under the Great Tribulation. Yeah. In other words, the Jewish people would be wiped out if, if, if that process is continued. So it's limited to seven years. But, are, 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 you know, I'm not asking the question, so I guess yeah. I'm just... Right. Uh, <laughs> Why do you not recognize the four to five different blackouts throughout the 70th week of Daniel in the book of Revelation and seem to limit it uh, to one? For example, in Revelation 6 is just one of the blackouts, and yet you seem to merge all of the other blackouts that are all in different contexts and uh, development into that blackout. No, that's a good question. Um, in my opening statement, I actually did acknowledge that there are blackouts during the day of the Lord's judgment in the trumpet judgments, bow judgments, for example, you know, the third of the stars, you know, or a third of the light goes out. But uh, the celestial disturbances that I'm referring to, there seems to be a consistency of, uh, not just a consistency of, of the terminology, like the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven. You don't see that language in that form in the trumpet and bowl judgments. You do have other uh, luminaries, uh, you know, going dark, chaos, and whatnot during the trumpet uh, judgments and bowl judgments. But when it comes to this, especially when Jesus is citing from Joel that when he says that this cluster of events will happen before the day of the Lord. So I'm just, I'm trying to compare scripture with scripture and with this very, not just, it's not just similar language, it's the context because you have before it, you have, uh, great tribulation before and after it, you have uh, God's decisive intervention uh, or in, uh, in, with human history. Yeah, but you, you have different contexts, like the, the the situation there in Revelation six is the stars fall to the earth. I take that as asteroids, but others the stars simply fall from the sky. It doesn't say that they go to the earth. And so you have qualitative differences once again, and yet you seem to merge those into a single event. I think you're reading a little too much into the figurative language there. I, but I do agree, whether it's asteroids or meteors or whatever yeah. coming in, uh, I think that is the language, especially when it talks about stars, right? I mean, right. I, so... Asteria. Um, I don't know if you're making... It sounds like you're making too strict of a, a distinction between the language because the New Testament writers, they could have, they could have a certain... Uh, latitude of freedom in their 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 terms, their description. So uh, I wouldn't be so hard fast with. Um, well, it would seem that you would almost have to have a recapitulation view of the seal, trumpet, and judgments, which you say you don't. Yeah, not at all. But uh, for example, the trumpet judgments are partial judgments, and that's why he then dumps the full judgment. So there are similarities between the trumpet and bowl judgments, but. Uh, you have different blackouts and events going on at the, that time, but I agree. Uh, so that's a reason for those being different, and and therefore uh, it occurs. It seems to me uh, that that blackout there in Revelation six occurs early on. Uh, I would see that before the trumpets, right? I mean, I, I would. Would you? Is yeah, definitely okay. before the trumpets, right? Because it, it has come. Uh, so. Why is your view of the timing of the rapture based on an inference and not clear passages? Uh, it's not based on the inference. It's actually based on clear uh, passages, I believe. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is the most explicit passage in the New Testament where it uh, the Thessalonians, they were fretting about that they were in the day of the Lord or it already passed, however you want to interpret that, that verb. Uh, and Paul is reassuring them, Paul is reassuring them that 
Uh, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. Uh, there are two events that have to happen before the day of the Lord, and by extension, the rapture, because in verse 2, you have Paul begin, or verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, concerning uh, the, the coming and our being gathered to him, and then he doesn't differentiate between the day of the Lord or the parousia. Uh, he uses those terms interchangeably, but he's addressing, this is the issue, the, the coming and the parousia, two events have to happen before that, and that is... Um, and that, and that will be uh, the man of lawlessness and the apostasy will happen before the day of the Lord. And I believe uh, that's uh, the basis to, to show that the, um, the rapture will happen yeah, uh, I, after I had, the Antichrist. I had already a debate once with Robert Gundry on this in his book, uh, First the Antichrist, based on that very passage. And I pointed out to this great Greek scholar uh, that... Uh, it, he's not saying, you look up any translation virtually, and it will say that the day of the Lord has come. It, it doesn't say we are in the day of the Lord. Don't you understand that? Uh, actually, you you have the, of course, the, the, um, uh, the I believe it's the apodosis that is missing. Uh, there, but yes. the, the, the action, though, is showing that then that, that's why Jesus, uh, that, that's why Paul says, "Don't let you know, don't be deceived." Right? Right. And he mentions the the day of the Lord as if they're fretting. Don't let any, uh, don't be deceived by any letter or oral teaching or whatnot. Right? That we are in the day of the Lord, and he gives reasons why we are not in the day of the Lord. Yet you Correct. say it's uh, saying that the. Uh, the Antichrist has to come first, and that's not what it's yes. saying. Actually, he, actually, it does say that. No, I it doesn't. It, does, the, it says pro, uh, protos. You have the, the, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness happens before, right? Yeah, the, but I'm not talking the day about of the Lord's that part wrath. of the passage. I'm talking about the part where uh, he says, you know, the sense is the day of the Lord would not be here, would not have come unless the apostasia and the revelation of the man of sin had occurred first. Those are reasons why they are not in the day of the Lord. And yet, Gundry and yourself, pre-rathers, want to say that that means, no, this has to come first, and therefore pre-tribulationalism is wrong. No, it's not saying that. The, the grammar is, we are not in the day of the Lord, and here are two reasons why. First. Okay, let me um, address that. Uh, the term protos is used as uh, Paul is explicitly saying what what must come first, okay? And he connects the apostasy uh, and the man of lawlessness uh, as I see it as a twofold event uh, that must happen before the day of the Lord. It can be nothing but the day of the Lord because the context here, like I said, Paul is saying in verse one, he's saying. Uh, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now being gathered to Him, and then, and then he mentions uh, the day of the Lord. That is the context, and then he, uh, the uh, the protestus of of the uh, conditional clause there uh, indicates that these events, this twofold event, uh, will come first uh, before the uh, before the day of the Lord, and by extension, I believe, before the gathering or the. Um, of the rapture. Yeah, I know that's what you say, but uh, I mean, I I have researched this. I know you have as well. And uh, Bob Gundry did not counter me when I pointed out that the original language says these are you're not in the day of the Lord because first uh, uh, the the Antichrist or the apostasia hasn't happened, and secondly, the Antichrist is not here. Okay, first of all, I, I completely disagree with, I think, your, your, uh, um, your uh, representation of Gundry because I have completely read him differently. Right, he but, said different, but, here, but he did not argue okay, with on, me. I got, a, I got a minute here, so um, I want to respond. Uh, the Second Thessalonians 2.1, okay, let's, I just want to walk through this. So you have, again, the, the, the concerning, or now concerning the coming parousia of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind uh, or alarmed, either by a spirit, spoken word, letter. So here, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Right. Okay, so he, so what's being said there is that the Thessalonians, uh, he, uh, they 
They think they have, they're in the day of the Lord, or maybe it's already passed. In any event, he wants, Paul wants to reassure them that they are not, uh, that the day of the Lord is yet in the future. And so he is saying that protos first, the apostasy, and then he connects the man of lawlessness uh, with that together. Yeah, but he's not saying that the Antichrist has to appear uh, for Christians or the believers. It says, well, isn't it interesting in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, a few verses later, he explicitly says that the parousia is going to put an end to the Antichrist. And well, I how agree. can he put an end to the Antichrist if the Antichrist is not... But you're making a disruption. You're disrupting the unity of that text by saying, oh, no, 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 that, that parousia, that's still in the future. Uh, that's not the parousia that Paul is mentioning in verse 1. I think that's very inconsistent. Well, it, it's very interesting, but almost all commentaries say, yeah, he, he lists first, the Antichrist has not appeared, and secondly, uh, the man of lawless has to appear. And then he goes off onto the man of lawless and talks about his career there. So uh, he, first, not, I disagree. I don't know about the, your, your reference of all commentaries. Again, that's... Virtually uh, all commentaries. In other words, this is not what you say it is. First of all, I disagree with that. I've read a lot fine. of commentaries on Thessalonians. But, and it all depends on... Again, we're not here to you know, uh, count noses. Uh, I know it, it just depends on who's the interpreter of the, of the uh, commentary of uh, Thessalonians. I mean, Colin Nickel, very well-known uh, Thessalonian scholar, uh, you know, would, would completely disagree with you. So here, I'm not, uh, my, my argument is not to say, well, this commentary over here, this person says this. Uh, that's what you've been doing, but I'm not no. about counting noises. I want to talk about biblical argumentation. Look at the context. This took, see, I don't believe that you can walk through Second Thessalonians 2 uh, and, and look at the, the, the coherence of the text. You have to disrupt the text with your presupposition that there is a quote-unquote rapture coming and then you have a second coming or a, 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 you know, a, a sec, another second coming seven years later. My view, Dr. Ayas, is that I can walk through Second Thessalonians uh, in, even back to uh, chapter 1, and go through, because I believe that uh, chapter 2 is uh, actually a, um, a bad chapter break, and walk through the whole text and give a coherent position of the pre position. Another wrong presupposition, because we do it all the time. We go through these texts and teach them. I'm simply saying that second, uh, New American Standard, for example, says, let no one in any way deceive you for it, referring back to the day of the Lord. Uh, and, of course, this is in italics because of the uh, apodosis that's missing. Uh, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. In other words, this is why they are not in the day of the Lord. He's saying that that has to come, whatever that is, whether that's the rapture. Yes, I, 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 see, right. what, I see what you're saying, and I know, I know Thomas uh, from and, uh, Masters makes that argument as well. And again, the problem is very, the term, the, the adverb protos first is very, I, I think it's a very problematic to your, your conclusion. Because first of what? Well, it has to come first before the day of the Lord. Right. Well, most of my, hardly any of my commentaries are pre-trib, by the way. Uh, and, and they take a similar uh, understanding of the passage. And I'm not basing it on that. I'm basing it on exegesis. Uh, so if your view of the rapture is that it's talked about in Joel and things like this, the second coming, then how could that be since Jesus introduces the concept of the rapture in the Olivet or the uh, upper room discourse? Uh, I believe he actually introduces the rapture a few days uh, earlier than the upper room discourse. Uh, I find it very interesting that the term that Jesus uses, uh, paralambano, I use a modern Greek pronunciation, uh, paralambano, uh, Jesus uses that uh, in the uh, his analogy of you know one taken and 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 uh, one left. And it's interesting that I always find it troubling that, wait a minute, Jesus can use paralambano to receive his people in John 14, but if, to refer to the rapture, but a few days later, Jesus can, can use that uh, same term to talk about those who are taken, the elect, uh, and yet that can't refer to the rapture. Again, I think this is very inconsistent, and it's a presupposition that uh, that the preterb rapture is not, or the the uh, preterb, yeah, preterb rapture is not found in um, uh, Matthew twenty four, and I believe that the rapture is found in Matthew twenty four thirty one. 
Well, we now come to the time of our closing statements. And let me just before we do that, encourage some of you to visit the book tables here. We've got some great books here and you have an opportunity for them to uh, sign those books. So let me encourage you to drop by there and appreciate you all sticking with us. Uh, Seven minutes for each one of them and then we'll conclude the evening. First of all, I want to thank everyone for attending, um, including uh, Kirby Anderson of uh, Probe Ministries, uh, Dr. Ice. appreciate the, the spirited debate that we've had uh, this evening. And actually, I hope uh, this will turn into a series of debates. Uh, I, in the future, we'll see what happens there. But uh, tonight, tonight I've, uh, this evening, I've, I've attempted to try to, in my limited time, uh, to make a case that the last generation of the church wish it could be this generation. And that the last generation of the church will face the Antichrist great tribulation before the rapture. Uh, I, uh, you know, whether I've made a, a biblical, plausible case for that, of course, that is up to your judgment. And the points that I've, I've tried to stress in this debate is there's a fundamental distinction between the the Antichrist Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. I think that's so important to understand. If you get that wrong, I think you're going to get a lot of your eschatology as far as the surrounding events of the the, the uh, Christ's return wrong. You have to recognize that, yes, we are exempt from the Day of the Lord's Wrath, but the Day of the Lord's Wrath is not the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation will be directed against God's people. I also try to present a unified teaching among Jesus' teaching, Paul's teaching, and the book of Revelation. And I believe that Dr. Ice, Dr. Ice's position creates a false dichotomy among uh, this, these teachings and disrupts the coherence of these texts. And so I, I, I believe it's uh, pre-tribulationism. I believe it is riddled with assumptions, circular reasoning, and based on the flawed presupposition on the relationship between Israel and the church. Of course, I, I believe the church and Israel are distinct from each other, but I, I believe that, um, that we have to have a proper understanding that God does work with Israel and the church at the same time. He's done it in the past. He does it right now. He's working with Israel and the church right now, and he will in the future uh, during the seven-year period. And so overall, I do not believe that Dr. Ice has satisfactorily responded to my biblical arguments. In my uh, opening period, I presented a line of evidence of comparing Scripture with Scripture with respect to the celestial disturbance event. Uh, this event is it's not, this is not going to be some Hollywood sci-fi event. Uh, this is going to be a collision course with humankind. And so my question, my question for you this evening is, if you are living... If you live in that last generation of the church, again, it could be this generation. My question for you is, will you be an overcomer during the Antichrist Great Tribulation? The book of Revelation is all about not escaping, but overcoming. And so, if you overcome and if God wills it in his Sovereign decree that you will be one of those that Paul says, those who are alive up to the parousia. When you see those celestial disturbances, the question is, will you have the faith that you will not faint in fear of what is coming upon the world? You will not be uh, um, have um, well fear and trepidation trepidation that that you don't know if you're secure in your faith. Because these celestial disturbances is going to cause trepidation among many people. No one's going to be on the fence. And my hope is that my hope is that you will have the confidence. Can't wait then. You got to prepare right now. That you have the confidence when you see these celestial disturbances, that you will raise your head, stand, and know that your redemption draws near. My final word this evening is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul. A bit of a doxology here in, in this debate. And that is, again, if we are 
the final generation of the church, we will face the Antichrist. And my hope is that Paul's text here in Romans of God's promise that you may take this promise to heart during the Great Tribulation. And this is the hope that we must depend upon during that time. And that is Romans 8, 35, 39. And I'll just conclude here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or a sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity as well and uh, be able to uh, articulate and defend uh, what the New Testament teaches uh, about the preacher of rapture and its relationship to the totality of Scripture. And uh, I believe my opponent has stated his view. Uh, I think he's blind to his own presuppositions and his own um, circular reasoning, if what he's described as circular reasoning. And uh, I believe that these can only be uh, decided by exegetical hand-to-hand combat, so to speak, uh, of going through these passages. And uh, also, if you noticed, he's totally absent dealing with these specific mystery aspects of the New Testament, which is the revelation about the... uh, Rapture and the church's eschatology, as Paul stated early in his ministry, his writing career in First and Second Thessalonians, about the uniqueness of the church's destiny as promised by Christ in the Upper Room Discourse. And he has failed to show any convincing proof that the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, should be chopped up into these little segments, something that uh, I think Bob Gundry pretty much started in the late 70s, and it's my understanding from Reynolds Showers, who was good friends with Robert Van Camping, who invented the pre-wrath rapture view, uh, that he was at his house during this month or so when he was going through these passages, that Van Camping eliminated pre-tribulationalism in his thinking, and then he eliminated post-tribulationalism in his thinking. And he then came up, had to come up with something different, and this is what he came up with. And I remember when the pre-wrath view first came out, I got my free copy uh, from Marv Rosenthal. And uh, people, a few people said they believed in the pre-wrath rapture, and I never could get anybody to explain it to me in the same way. Uh, They were very confused about what it means, because it is a very confusing viewpoint. And uh, because there aren't clear passages that teach the distinctive features or factors of this, it's based on uh, what I call Robert Gundryisms of dividing that up. And the reason Gundry, I think, came up with this is he was trying to come up with a non-pre-trib uh, dispensational form of post-tribulationalism that did separate the comings. And it's very evident uh, that this is that the features that are new and distinctive to uh, the pre-wrath view uh, are in response to these pre-existing uh, systems. Some people say, "Well, the pre-trib rapture is a new view." Well, it is relatively new, even though if you go on our website, we have found over a dozen pre-Darby rapture statements all the way back to uh, around the 280s, and we're finding more and more. Uh, that people had some form of the separation of the rapture as a separate event and uh, the second coming as a separate event, all the way uh, to 1744 with uh, Morgan Edwards and his very clear statement of pre-tribulationalism, 
that he wrote at the University of uh, Bristol College in England, a Welshman who founded Brown University and Ivy League School, by the way, in America. And uh, I believe that the New Testament does not tell us in the epistles that are designed to tell a Christian how to live. I don't know of any place where it warns us about you're going to go through and face the Antichrist and all of these kinds of things. It tells us a dozen times roughly that we are waiting for his son from heaven, that he could come back at any moment. And this idea that somehow if you believe in the preacher of rapture, you're somehow going to deny your faith if it didn't happen is ridiculous because what enables a person to persevere and to be a person who perseveres is maturity. And we may face all kinds of persecution before the rapture occurs. Are we going to be ready? You know, well, millions of Christians have been before us. And so it's a basic issue of maturity, not whether. How, how are believers who are brand new believers during the tribulation going to endure this? And even in the passage that he read in closing, uh, it talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ if you're a believer. Not death, not persecution, not anything. And the Bible gives us a different scenario. But yet I hear pre-rathers all the time. This is the big question. Is our view is dangerous? You know, some even have conspiracy theories of the Jesuits involved and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, bringing in the uh, pre-rath view and how Hal Lindsey, I even saw one Hal Lindsey was paid, his way was paid to Dallas Seminary so he could be an instrument for propagating uh, pre-tribulationalism. And uh, the point is, is that it is our blessed hope, and it's clearly uh, something that the church, the early church, did not realize. But there's a lot of things the early church didn't realize. Are you going to adopt their view of ecclesiology? Are you going to adopt their works view of salvation? Uh, what about doctrine justification wasn't articulated to Luther in the 1500s. What about the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement wasn't articulated until Abelard in um, around the year 1000? There has been a development of the church's understanding of doctrine, but the pre-wrath view, its distinctive elements, you know, were invented in the Chicagoland area by Robert Van Camping as he eliminated... Uh, the two, the two views post and pre-tribulationalism according to Reynolds Showers who was actually there with him during that time. So I believe that we should be waiting for our Lord because it says in the scripture that that purifies us. It motivates us to be the faithful bride who's waiting for our Lord to return as we go about evangelizing the world and preaching the gospel. Thank you.